So in other ways, Luke talks about the dazzling bodies of the resurrected Jesus. Um, so there's the whole idea that whatever body Jesus appeared in, they all assumed it was physical. Now, that's the thing. See, they, they assumed it was physical, but they, but it's not in the sense of what we consider physical. Because I, I try to tell people, imagine they thought about, if you can imagine what would be a body, a human body made only of of electricity and oxygen, what would it look like? And that's kind of what they're claiming that they saw. I think that's kind. Of, I can. I think it's the closest we modern people can get to getting inside their head. Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. Couple of quick updates before we get into today's episode. I've reached out to a lot of people, and I've been able to schedule some really amazing guests for the next few months. I'm not going to run through all of it now, but if you do want to get updates on who's coming onto the show and what the next episode is going to be, as well as just some general political philosophy news, videos, stuff like that, follow us on social media. We have a Facebook page, we have a Twitter page. I post on them reasonably regularly a few times a week, so please do follow there, and the links to that are on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. Second update is I'm going to be trying and be much more consistent with the length of these episodes. Sometimes I just get into a really good discussion and we overrun our time, as happened with today's guest, in which case I'm going to do multi-part episodes. I'm going to try and be consistent at 50 minutes an episode, so as not to make too much demands on our audience's time. So today's episode is going to be the first of a three-part series on the history of Christianity and its impact on the history of political thought. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the earliest Christian writings, which are those of Paul, the accounts of the resurrection, what these people believed, and how the early church grew. In next week's episode, we're going to talk about the growth of Christianity from Christ to Constantine and what ideas and what structures enabled that. And we're going to look at various secular accounts for that growth. And in the final episode, we're going to look at what all of that means for us today, both for those of us who don't believe and those of us who do. And for this discussion, I really couldn't imagine a better conversation partner than my guest, Professor Dale B. Martin. Professor Martin is the Woosley Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at Yale University. He specialises in New Testament and Christian origins, including the social and cultural history of the Greco-Roman world. Before joining Yale, he's taught at Rhodes College and Duke University, and his single-authored books include Slavery as Salvation, the Metaphor of Slavery in Pauline Christianity, The Corinthian Body, Inventing Superstition, Sex and the Single Saviour, Gender and Sexuality in Biblical Interpretation, Pedagogy of the Bible, An Analysis and Proposal, and New Testament History and Literature. He's published articles on topics relating to the ancient family, gender and sexuality in the ancient world, as well as the ideology of modern biblical scholarship. He's also, and how I found Professor Martin, 
the presenter for the Yale Open Courses Introduction to the New Testament. So for those of you who don't know Yale Open Courses, there's a number of lecture series that you can take online where you essentially just take the course on your own time. It's a really valuable resource. And if you are interested in properly studying the New Testament, I would strongly recommend, and I'll link to on my website, uh, Professor Martin's introduction. It's quite long. It's 26, I think, episodes, um, almost 30 hours long. So if you don't have time for all of that, I think we provide a pretty good crash course to it. But if you listen to us and you want to learn more, I would definitely recommend that as a starting point. It's really one of the best online courses I've ever taken. Um, and I've taken quite a few. It's how I learn about a lot of this stuff. So, with that as preamble, we're starting at the beginning, looking at the very first Christian writings. Those of St. Paul. And then we're going to move on in the later episodes to look at how that impacts history of political thought and how we think today. So there's a little bit of a long introduction, so without any further preamble, it is my absolute pleasure to present Professor Dale B. Martin. joined today by Professor Dale B. Martin. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great. So my interest here is I want to provide from a historical perspective, like a crash call to Paul of Tarsus or St. Paul, if you prefer. Um, Just before we even get into any of that, who are you? Uh, How would you describe what you do to someone who hadn't heard of you? Well, I am a New Testament scholar, a biblical scholar, I'm also, though, uh, something like a social cultural historian of the ancient Greco-Roman world. I uh, just retired from teaching at Yale University for uh, many years, and I I started publishing on Paul himself. My first two books were about Paul. Uh, Then I branched out and I published on ancient superstition, uh, ancient slavery, the the family in antiquity. Um, So I've published a lot on just different aspects of the society and culture of the ancient Mediterranean including family, gender, sexuality. I've published a lot on sexuality in the ancient world and on biblical interpretation and a theological and theoretical uh, point of view also. So I've, I've done a lot of publications in a wide range of things related to interpretation of the Bible and early Christianity. Great. Um, so I guess I should say, like, my interest in Paul is historical. I've never actually been religious, but I became convinced that you can't understand the history of particular ideas, particularly with relation to Paul, the idea of freedom or liberty, without understanding certain religious input into that. Well, that sounds like you should have been a religious studies major at Yale then, because that's what exactly what we say all the time. Yeah, you know, in another life, I could have been sort of one of those atheists who really gets into this stuff yeah, and studies yeah. it. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not completely ignorant. I've done, well, your course, in fact. I listened to your lectures that you put up, and I've read the sort of sources. I certainly don't read the original Greek or anything, but... 
it, it's, it's always sort of been an intellectual hobby, if not a, a, a central provocation. Um, so to start with then, for, as a historian, what can we say about Paul biographically? Who, who was this man in history? What can we confidently say about him? Okay, I should say from the beginning that you're probably going to get a bit more uh, critical approach from me than you would get even from other Pauline scholars. I am currently anticipating writing a book maybe this summer called Luke versus Paul, in which I compare the presentation of Paul that we can derive only from his own seven undisputed letters. And there are only seven of them in the New Testament that scholars will generally agree Paul actually wrote and six which were written in his name or by other people. Uh, And I say that if you look at the biography we get from Paul or even the theology we get from Paul only from his letters and don't bring in Acts of the Apostles, you get a very different Paul than if you go with the Acts of the Apostles portrait. And so my book is basically gonna show what kind of Paul you get from Acts of the Apostles, which I'm gonna say, we don't really have any reason to take to accept that as historical. It seems to be a manufactured Paul to meet the theological and social needs of whoever wrote the Acts of the Apostles, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, the same author wrote both texts. So for example, when you say Paul of Tarsus, I would point out, well, Paul never says he was from Tarsus. Uh, I think it's indisputable that he was a predominantly Greek-speaking Jew from the diaspora, that is outside of Israel or Palestine. And he comes from an urban environment. I think we could tell that. But everything I'm going on is just what can we surmise based on the kind of Greek he uses, the way he writes his letters, the things he says about himself. So I would even say, I'm, I'm hesitant to say, for example, that Paul was a Roman citizen, although it says three times in the Acts of the Apostles that he was not only a Roman citizen, but that he was born a Roman citizen, which would have meant that his father was a Roman citizen. Um, and I don't think we can say that because Paul never calls himself a Roman citizen or Roman in any way in his letters. And that might be something he could have made use of when he was writing his letter to the Romans. Um, So we don't know that Paul was from Tarsus, actually, because we don't find it in his letters. Uh, So I'm I'm kind of more skeptical than even a lot of other very skeptical Paul scholars would be. But I would base my biography purely on his seven undisputed letters. And from those, we can tell he's definitely Jewish. I think his predominant language was Greek. I don't think there's any evidence from his letters that he could speak Hebrew um, or Aramaic for that matter. Um, he, he obviously knew an Aramaic phrase here or there, like Maranatha, um, but that could be easily picked up in the, the liturgy of primitive church. Um, but his Greek is not a kind of Greek, even that, for example, we get in Josephus. We know that Josephus wrote his stuff in Greek, but he had to have Greek help to write it in good Greek. He had Greek scribes. We don't have any idea that Paul had any need for help. His Greek and his letters show, I think, that he had at least a rhetorical education, an education in Greek rhetoric, which means that he must have had what we would call an elementary school type uh, Greek education. And on top of that, what would be sort of the teenage education that teenage boys would have had in rhetoric, learning to write speeches, memorize speeches, give speeches. His letters show obvious. So he's from a Greek speaking Jewish family from the diaspora, not Palestine. Um, he's had some kind of education. He also says that he was a Pharisee born of, and so that means he was from a very conservative, uh, law abiding Torah, um, uh, obeying Jewish family. 
So you can't think that because he's from a Greek-speaking area and he's very Hellenized that that means he's any less Jewish. He's just he's he's very Jewish. He's very he's also an apocalypticist. He believes that the the end is coming soon. The Messiah is going to come and create the kingdom of God on earth. So he's an apocalyptic, Hellenistic, conservative, Pharisaic Jew who became convinced in a surprising way, it seems like he had some kind of visionary experience that the person who his follower, that, that Jesus's followers, whom Paul started out persecuting, um, probably because they were allowing people to come into their movement without being circumcised and without obeying the law. Paul has some kind of visionary experience that forces him to join the group rather than persecute the group. And then he also believes that since Jesus was, was the Messiah and rose from the dead, those are two things that can only happen at the end of history uh, for an apocalyptic Jew like Paul. So he believes he's living at the end of history, and he believes Jesus is going to come back very, very soon, any day. And he believes his mission, he's been called by God just like Jeremiah and Isaiah. When he talks, of, Paul never talks about his conversion. He was not converted to anything. He was called. Paul never uses the word Christianity. He never uses the word Christian, and he probably would have rejected both words. Because those would have implied that he was trying to start a, what we would call a new religion. And he's not doing that at all. He believes he's been called as a prophet by God to be an apostle that is one sent to convert Gentiles to be members of Israel. They're not joining a church simply. They're actually being grafted like wild olive shoots into the root of Israel. And that's his mission. Is just like Peter was called, he believes, to get Jews to accept Jesus as the Messiah. Paul believes he was called by God to get Gentiles, not only to accept Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, but by that very action of being baptized into Jesus, they become sort of honorary Israelites. They become, he doesn't ever call them Jews. He doesn't ever call us the converts, the Greek converts in his churches Jews. But he also says, some of you were Gentiles. He talks of them as if they're no longer Gentiles because he believed they've already been grafted. Okay, so to summarize, we have an educated Greek-speaking Jew from a presumably conservative background, who on the basis of some presumed visionary or religious experience is now preaching what he sees as a radically different version of Judaism, but still a version of Judaism. And in terms of dating, we're talking roughly, what, between 50 and 60 BC? No, sorry, sorry AD here? That's when he's writing. Writing. Um, uh, we think that, from what he says in Galatians, um, that he must have had this experience not too long after uh, the actual death of Jesus. So Which sometimes generally dated about, like, 33, 30. 34? 30. 30? Okay. I'll put it at 30. Um, for, you know, we're all guessing, but I'll put it at 30. Uh, the way we do this is we, uh, Paul says some things at the beginning of Galatians. He says, this happened, then 14 years later this happened, then three years later this happened. And by adding up the numbers of years that he gives, scholars believe they can put back his, and, and for when we think that he went to the Jerusalem conference that, and before he wrote these letters, um, we kind of count back and say, if, if Jesus was executed in year 30, then Paul may have had this experience even as early as 34 or 35 or something like that. And then he's involved with Barnabas in a mission probably in Antioch. 
that disappears before he's writing his letters. And he, he, by the time he's writing his letters, he's no longer a partner with Barnabas, um, if we can believe he was a partner with Barnabas, because that, again, is only in Acts. But I think that he was obviously doing mission work before he started writing his letters. But his letters seem to come from right around the year 50. And then the first, the first is Thessalonians, as generally... First is... And just to make this really clear, because I think, well, just to make this really clear, these are the first documents we have on any of this, right? This is the closest we have to an eyewitness. Absolutely. Right? In fact, the only writing we have from anybody who claims to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus is Paul. Right, because what he claims to have seen is not a vision of Jesus, but the actual resurrected body, at least in some weird sense that he has of yes. it. It's absolutely important for Paul to insist that what he saw is exactly the same thing that what Peter saw and the other apostles, because that's what he bases his apostleship on. If he saw just a, a visionary, if he had a vision, whereas Paul actually saw some kind of physical body, uh, I mean, Peter saw some physical body, Paul would reject that. But Paul presumably was, you know, we would want to be a little bit cautious of that claim as historians. Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> the only thing historically you can say as a historian is that Paul believed. But he was also writing about and publishing letters that would be read by and could be sort of fact-checked by people who knew Jesus, like his brother James, right? So he's, he's the closest link that we have to sort of really evidencing the claim that there was a historical Jesus. What, what, I, I know your answer, but what do you make of that, by the way, the claim that's getting bandied about online at the moment, that, that Jesus might not even have existed at all? I think it falls by the criterion of Occam's razor. You know, historical, Occam's razor says the, the hypothesis that needs fewer and fewer suppositions added into the mix uh, is better than a, a historical explanation that needs a lot of other givens given to it. So, for example, Paul is the earliest example we have of anyone who claims to have seen the resurrected Jesus. But there's no way that – but we don't believe that you can trace every early Christian document back to Paul. Um, Mark is the earliest gospel. I would say that Mark may have known some of Paul's writings um, because he has some of the – some of Mark's theologies, for example, about the, the death of Jesus being an atoning death, a, a death for our sins, that you find in Paul and you find it in Mark. You don't find it in Luke, though, you see. So uh, the Gospels, uh, the four Gospels that are, exist in our canon, and then there's the Gospel of Thomas, which is not in the canon, but I would believe, I would say that it is at least one of the relatively early Gospels, but still put in the second century. Mark is the earliest Gospel. It's from around the year 70. Luke and Matthew both use Mark as sources, so they must be maybe, what, 10 years or so after Mark. So we put them in the 80s. The Gospel of John, most of us think, shows a much more developed theology and Christology and a more developed notion of the church and a more developed relationship to Judaism. So we think I would put John maybe in the 90s. Now, these are all guesses, but I but, think but that they're— So you're, you're putting the later Gospels after the fall of Jerusalem? Yes. Mark is the earliest, and I think that he's writing— immediately before or immediately after the fall of Jerusalem. Is, because that, he, he gets is, that, something is that controversial in the field? Because I've heard Christians say that it was all pre-fall of Jerusalem. 
No, you wouldn't find a critical scholar saying that. Okay. Um, that would be said by evangelical scholars who want to predate everything in Christianity to as early as possible. No, it's the, the date of 70 or thereabouts for Mark is generally what almost all critical scholars of the Gospels will go along with. So if you take that timeline that you've just given, then Paul really is much closer to the history than anything he's, else that we he's have. He's 20 years prior. Hmm. So here's my next question, is if we can say reasonably confidently that if not every biographical detail in the Gospels is accurate, but that there was a historical Jesus. Would that claim stand up if we didn't have Paul? If in a hypothetical world, Paul's letters had been lost and the earliest documents we had were the Gospels, would that yeah, then become more credible? I don't know about that, but I would definitely say Paul is one of the most important uh, pieces of historical evidence that there was a historical Jesus. Because he's writing only 20 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, whereas Mark is writing, you know, 40 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. I always start my course, I used to start, and I'm now retired, but I used to start my courses in the introduction to the New Testament by saying, um, what would you be able to say about the, the assassination of John F. Kennedy if you had nothing about it except something that was written 40 years afterwards? It was written, say, in 2003. 2003 was the earliest written evidence you had about an assassination of JFK that happened in 1963. And, you know, that's what you've got with Christianity is the Gospel of Mark written 40 years after the event. So Paul, by being 20 years previous to that, um, he and also now he, he will often say Paul is kind of the he. he denies that he really got anything from anybody else, from Peter or James or John or anybody, but he clearly did. There are times when he's clearly passing on traditional material, such as in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, when he gives a list of, of names of people or people who think they saw the resurrected Jesus after his death. He gives a list. Now that's clearly given as a list that someone's given him. So where did that list come from? Well, if he was, if he had his own experience around 34, 35, that list of people who claim to have seen the resurrected Jesus and claim to have been followers of Jesus in his own lifetime goes back to the early 30s. That's a Yeah, so what are we to make of this evidence? Because the, the classical sort of, although I'm not religious, I was brought up in the UK where you do religious education, and the, the story you're given in Sunday school or whatever of the resurrection isn't at all what you get from the Gospels. You get this very weird vision. There's Paul claiming that he's met the resurrected body in the, the 30s at some point. And then there's a lot of other people, but they talk about it in such a strange way as they didn't recognise him at first, and they thought he was someone else. And then it's only once... There's almost some sort of like weird conspiracy theory where there were two separate people that might be plausible here. Like, and it's only when he does stuff like break the bread that they recognise him. What what are we to make of this from a historical point of view? Well, I've I've written quite a lot about this, as a matter of fact, uh, in my most recent book, which is Biblical Truths: um, The Meaning of Scripture in the Twenty First Century. I argue that's a, that's a book of theology. It's basically saying I want to show you how you can be a believing Christian in a modern and postmodern world even knowing that a whole lot of this stuff does not stand up to the criteria of history or science. 
Um, and one of the things I do is I go through and point out how the resurrection accounts, the different accounts of the appearance of Jesus after his resurrection, none of them can really meet the criteria of history. They're just not historical. And part of the reason is that they all disagree with one another about every detail, about who saw Jesus, where they saw Jesus, when they saw Jesus, what they saw. Um, and so, and the earliest one we have is, is Paul, and he never claims to have seen Jesus until a few years after Jesus' death. And then he also claims that he didn't see a flesh and blood body. He saw a pneumatic body, a body made of pneuma, which we often translate spirit, but it really means it's a substance. It's like oxygen or air. He saw a body. We don't know what he saw. Did he see some kind of flashing light? Did he see a, a gleam? Did he see? We don't know what he saw, but it wasn't Jesus' flesh and blood body, at least if we believe his description of it in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's the only eyewitness we have of anybody who says they saw the resurrected body, which is historically verifiable by modern historians. And we don't know what he saw. And he's, but it he's, he's maddeningly unclear about what he even claims to have seen. He says it's like exactly. the seed and the flower. It's, it's, it's different but the same. And you're like, could you like literally paint us a picture here? Because I'm, I'm, I'm struggling here to even... I think, he's, I think whatever he believes he saw, it was something that was flashing light because he talks about it in words that evoke um, light flashing. That also matches... Uh, things in the Gospels where in the transfiguration of Christ, of Jesus and Mark, it talks about his his clothes dazzling like lightning. And some a lot of scholars have argued that um, that scene is a misplaced resurrection appearance scene in the Gospel of Mark. He's taken what was a resurrection appearance tradition that he had inherited or heard from somebody, and he puts it right smack dab in the middle of his narrative about Jesus' earthly life. So in other ways, Luke talks about the dazzling bodies of the resurrected Jesus. Um, so there's the whole idea that whatever body Jesus appeared in, they all assumed it was physical. Now that's the thing, see, they, they assumed it was physical, but they, but it's not in the sense of what we consider physical. Because I, I try to tell people, imagine they thought about, if you can imagine what would be a body, a human body made only of, of electricity and oxygen, what would it look like? And that's kind of what they're claiming that they saw. I think that's kind. Of, I can. I think it's the closest we modern people can get to getting inside their heads. But see, that's what historians can. We can only suppose. We can't say what they saw. We can't say what they experienced. I think the closest we can get is saying that at least several people who have been followers of Jesus, including Paul, but he wasn't a follower of Jesus during Jesus' lifetime. They saw. They really believed they saw something. They're not making it up. They're not lying. They saw they believe they saw something, but what they saw, did they see a light flashing on a mountainside? Did they see, you know, um, something mysterious uh, at night? Um, but, you know, this is not this is not too weird for history. I mean, we know there are people who believe they saw, you know, Elvis Presley after his death in the yeah. McDonald's. And there's, there's, there's nothing, I think, from a rational scientific worldview that claims people don't have extraordinary psychological experiences and exactly. people so, have visions. And I think we almost know scientifically now that people really, you can have radically altered states of perception. Yes. But to, to summarise this then, what we know from history is that there was this movement surrounding some sort of leader or prophet in Israel who was executed by crucifixion in around 30. 
And then the closest we've got to it is a guy who, along with others, claims to have sort of some vision of this man resurrected around 34, and then starts writing about it another 15 years later, when he's in the business of founding churches based on these visions. And this man is a reasonably educated Greek-speaking Jew. And that's about as close as you can get to the history of Christ. I would say that's uh, that's the minimalist view. I think you can build on more of that. I, I have taught courses many, many times on the historical Jesus, where I teach both not only um, what can we, what can historians, even unbelieving historians, uh, make out about the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, and then I also try to teach the, the students though what is the method we're using here. I'm trying to get them introduce them to what is the practice of modern historiography. What you know, and you could apply this to George Washington. You, uh, you could apply this to Plato. Well, who is the historical Plato? Well, there's quite a bit of debate. I mean, you've got his writings, uh, or even more, who's the historical Socrates? Because you get a different Socrates in Plato and Xenophon. I was going to say Socrates would be the better analogy for Jesus here, because there's nothing exactly. first person. A lot of people have made that analogy. Um, so, but I would say that, you know, we can say more about Jesus of Nazareth. I think we can say definitely that he was... Um, not a Hellenistic Jew. He was a Jew from Galilee, uh, probably from Nazareth. The whole Bethlehem birth thing is a later legend, but he's grew up, born probably and raised in Nazareth. Um, he, uh, his mother's named Mary. Um, we don't know much about his father, but his father may well have been named Joseph, but the father seems not to be a part of the picture when he finally ends up deciding that he's going to go out and start preaching and, and um, doing things. He was a follower of John the Baptist in the beginning. He was baptized by John the Baptist. And apparently he and John the Baptist had a falling out, maybe a disagreement over purity issues or something like that, or, or diet or drinking or whatever. And so he starts gathering his own disciples, some of whom were also disciples first of John the Baptist. And for whatever time, you know, we, traditionally we say three years, but that's also a weird reading of com combining John and Luke. Um, you don't have anything in the Bible that says Jesus' ministry lasted three years, but uh, it could have been a few months, it could have been a year, um, and that he decides to go to Jerusalem. And I have argued that the historical Jesus probably went to Jerusalem with the idea that um, he would force, he, he, that the Messiah was, was coming and would be would appear in Jerusalem. And this in this scenario, Jesus didn't see himself as the Messiah, but as a precursor to the Messiah, sort of like another John the Baptist. Or he could have come to believe that he himself was the Messiah. In any case, I've argued that he went to Jerusalem with the intention of partaking in a war that would be led by the Messiah and would bring in by force the kingdom of God and overthrow the Romans and the Sadducees who ruled the temple in Jerusalem at the time, the high priests. And so, uh, so, so I have an article that was picked up in Newsweek about that at one point called Jesus in Jerusalem armed and not dangerous. And so that's my argument that this, I, this is me playing the historical Jesus game. So I think you can say a lot about the history. I think he definitely taught in, in parables. I think he definitely taught in a kind of folksy way of teaching. I think he definitely had a more rather liberal view. But you have to be quite deductive to get there, right? You have to really look at the sources in detail and play a certain amount with them. 
like that, that's deductive. There's no first-hand source. Of that, that's you looking at the Gospels and saying, is it in multiple Gospels? Is it in the exactly. early Gospels? Does it go against exactly. interest? You know what I mean? Sometimes we, we, um, we, sometimes we put these in sort of rules, but they're not really rules. But multiple attestation. You know, is this parable, does this parable occur in more sources than only one? Well, maybe that means it goes back to the historical Jesus. The, I think one of the best is, were, was any early follower of Jesus likely to invent this story or this saying? Or does it kind of go against their own theology? So there are things in the different Gospels that Jesus says that don't really match the theology of that Gospel writer. And, and we find something like there's also some things which they seem at pains to apologize for. Like they, exactly. they, they always seem to be forever trying to wiggle out under from Jesus being against divorce, for instance. They don't exactly. like this. They, they change, they, they alter the divorce sayings in interesting ways in different sources. But we know Jesus must have taught something about divorce because Paul quotes Jesus on divorce. Mark has a other quotation of Jesus on divorce. Matthew has two different, Matthew and Luke have other, another quotation of Jesus on divorce that they share. So what that means is that Jesus taught about divorce, but it looks like the more the strictest teaching, which is that divorce is absolutely. So I want to move forward to Paul again. Just before I do, I've got this random question for you, which is, do you ever have this feeling of like sort of some historians describe it as like an existential dread of the sources we don't have? Like, it's not just like we don't have Q. It's like there, there might well have been written accounts in first person of Jesus's ministry that just got lost. Do you ever have this? Some historians describe it as like a feeling that keeps them up awake at night of just what has been lost and what we don't have. Well, I certainly wouldn't call it dread. I mean, I would call it a sense of loss. It'd be great. But I'm like, I'm, I'm like the scientists who believe that the practice of science is to get things wrong. That's what you're after, because when you've got something wrong, then you know something and you can go to the next step. So, it, it, you know, I certainly would I would love it if we could find, you know, uncover some new documents of Christianity. I think that the 20th century is an, an extremely exciting time because not only did uh, were the Dead Sea Scrolls pub, uh, discovered in the in around 45 and 50, 1945 and 50, which it totally changed the way we thought about Judaism, Second Temple Judaism, Judaism of the first century. And then you had the Nag Hammadi texts discovered around the same time, which told us all this stuff about what we used to call Gnostic Christianity. But it's a definitely a, a brand of Christianity that was kind of beaten down at one point in the fourth century. Um, and it gives us a much richer view of these things. So I wouldn't at all mind if there were other things. I would I would be like a kid in a candy shop. I'd be gleeful if we found new documents that, that changed our minds. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a scientific historian in the sense that I believe history is something you produce. It's not something that exists out there. But I admit that what we're producing is our own construction. And I'd be glad to throw it all away. Okay, so to summarize the ground we've covered so far, there was this preacher, Jesus, who was executed. Based on much later documents, we can infer certain things about him, but there's nothing firsthand. Then we get, in 34, an educated Greek-speaking Jew who, along with other people, claims to have experienced some vision of him that's quite hard for us to understand what it was today. Well, but he doesn't describe it as a vision. vision no, he yeah. describes it as an actual 
encounter, but what what it is he's encountering is very hard to visualise. Right. Um, and then he first enters history 15 years later, in maybe, like, 50, mm-hmm. with Thessalonians. And this is the first document we have for, en- for any of this. Um, so, question. If we have... The people, you know, in AD 34 experiencing visions through to First Thessalonians, through again to, like, Romans. Do you have any intuitive guesswork for, like, the size, the number of people we're talking about through that history? Like, how many... I know Christians is a bit anachronistic to use, but how many people are we talking about at each of those steps? Well, I don't think... I'm very hesitant to do a lot of uh, speculating on this because the only time we get numbers in the data are in the book of Acts. And I think those are wildly inflated. Um, According to Acts, the followers of Jesus who meet right after he ascends into heaven, so more than, you know, the 40 days after he, he's been, according to the Acts, Jesus is resurrected, he appears to the disciples, and then he spends 40 days living with them um, in Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem, and then he ascends into heaven. um, And then they have a meeting and they say, well, what are we going to do now? And uh, Acts says that it, there's 120, about 120 of them at that point. And that seems too many to you? To me, it seems too many to be actual committed followers of Jesus who had gone out of, who had uprooted their lives, moved from Galilee to Jerusalem to be with him, and then have stuck with him even through his death and are still meeting in Jerusalem Um for you know, months after his death, I, 120 I think would be a bit much. At the minimal end, you have you know that uh, well. I think it's definitely historical that Jesus appointed 12 special uh, disciples to represent the 12 tribes of a reconstructed and apocalyptically reconstructed Israel. I think that's historical, and I think it's historical that he had certain women followers who are especially close, especially Mary Magdalene, his mother Mary, also. I don't think at the beginning of his preaching ministry, she was not a follower, but she eventually became a follower. Um, his brother James, I don't think was a follower during his lifetime, but after his death, he must have become a follower because James, the brother of Jesus, was the head of the church in Jerusalem. So we can name a few people besides the 12 disciples. Uh, and, you know, so I'm thinking, well, what do you have then maybe? It's hard for me to imagine many more than, say, 20 or 25 people. So maybe like a couple of dozen total yes. at that sort of point. Right. Who are then going to found a movement that's going to change the future of the world, which is kind of an incredible thought. Yes. Um, and then Acts also says then that after Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost, it says 3,000 people that very same day joined the movement. Well, I think that could not have happened. And then in Acts 4, it says their number has grown to 5,000 people. This, this just feels like propaganda, though, right? Because the, 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 the earliest source, again, is Paul. And when you get the first writing in Thessalonians, it feels to me, and I haven't read it in the original language, but certainly if you compare it to something like Romans, it feels very intimate. It feels very warm. Like he's talking to a group of friends and acquaintances um, of like a small house church with maybe like 10 members or something in it. That's just yeah. the intuitive sense I get. If you notice, it sounds like he's talking only to men. It, I think that, in fact, I think that's one of the signs that this is the earliest of Paul's letters. 
Paul, when he wrote First Thessalonians, I haven't argued this only yet. There, a, a scholar in Denmark has argued it, and I kind of took my lead from her. Um, if you really analyze First Thessalonians, the language, the, 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 the Greek language of it, he never seems to be addressing women, and he definitely seems to be addressing men. For he, he talks about you have your, you know, vessels, control your vessels, and and he, it's it's we can't tell whether he means vessels to be their own body or their wives. But he never addresses the women, and this is not like Paul elsewhere. In First Corinthians seven. Uh, and several other places, when Paul addresses men, he also talks to the women. He talks to men and their partners, women partners. So, but only in First Thessalonians, Paul seems to talk only to men. And then so in, I, in, in Romans 16, he has like the long list of greetings, which includes a number of women as very well. Very important women. In fact, women are clearly, by the time Paul writes Romans and even Philippians and Corinthians, he's come to see the church as a much uh, of certainly including women and even women as leaders. He calls one woman an apostle in Romans 16. Right. A junior. But, so if we were to try and, I mean, this is pure speculation probably, but if we were to say we think around the time that people were claiming to have these these um, experiences of, of Jesus, um, there was maybe two dozen people. There's definitely more by the time Thessalonians is written because there's clearly different house churches in different cities. Yes. We know even from things that Paul says that there are churches, there is the church in Jerusalem. Usually when we say the church, we need to make sure that we don't imagine them all meeting in one place all the time. Uh, there would be several house churches. So we can tell from different so Paul's letters that there would be different house churches in first in Corinthians, for example, in Corinth, there'd be different house churches that are led by different people. And then every once in a while, they might come together. And if somebody is rich enough to have a big enough dining room, they might all come together for one place. But there, and in Jerusalem, the way Acts talks about it, and I've, I question the historicity of Acts a lot, but it's easily to imagine that they could have uh, the different different house churches that met in different places in Jerusalem would every once in a while all come together in say the the porches of the of the temple and worship together and pray and that sort of thing. And Paul but, Paul says again and again phrases like those people who meet in such and such his house. Exactly, right. So we know that there was no church building anywhere in the first century. The first building that we can identify as being um, a, a house that was turned into a church in a baptistry is right here at Yale. It's the Dura Europus house that was probably built around 230, 240. Um, and then covered over with dirt, and which is why it survived until it was rediscovered in 1930 uh, and is now reconstructed in the uh, Yale Art Gallery. But that's the earliest um, designated kind of church we have anywhere in the world is around the, the third century. So for the time of Paul and way up until into the second century, they probably met in different houses. So you have to say, OK, there was probably several house churches in Jerusalem. How many people could fit in a house church in a normal dining room? Because we know they ate together, too. Oh, what, 20, maybe? Uh, so if you had, say, three or four different house churches in Corinth in the first century, would you have maybe 60 you know, followers of Jesus in all of the city of Corinth, which is a big city? Would it be? 60 would it be 120 and you add corinth with rome which we know had several house churches at an early period uh then we have antioch which was an early 
important center for the Christian movement. And then we have Jerusalem. And if you just go around to the separate ma major cities in the eastern part of the Mediterranean and then add Rome to the mix, um, we just have to kind of guess. And what, what, what would you say? By the time of Paul, may there have been 500, 600? I don't know. And then you have, you have that funny number. You have that funny number when Paul's giving the list of people who've seen the resurrected Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, at one time, Jesus appeared to more than 500 at one time. Well, where and when did that take place? Was there an, Were there 500 people in the four years after Jesus' death who could have all been gathered together in one place to, to see a, the resurrected Jesus? So it's very hard to make of that number. It's very hard to make of all the numbers in the Bible. But you just have to kind of say— But then as Paul goes through his career, as you get to the later writings, you see a change of tone from my Thessalonians, sorry, is so much the vibe of my friends. I've really been missing you. I, I really, you know, it's keeping me awake at night that I can't see you. To then the later ones where he's going, no, no, these are the rules. This is how we do the service. This is the doctrine. And it does, I mean, my guess, and I'm not a scholar of this, I don't really know. My guess is there's maybe a few hundred people, maybe say 500 in um, the world of Thessalonians. But 10 years down the line in the world of Romans, when he's going, oh, and I want to thank this person, I want to thank the person who runs this church, I want to thank the person who organizes this, it feels like it's up to a few thousand. Like, it feels like it's just a much bigger deal. But that's just an intuitive guess. I have no idea. And basically, I just say, it's all white noise as far as I'm concerned. But something's happened, because by the time we're a hundred years out, this is going to be a real thing. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do share it. This is always my one ask of the audience, is help us to continue to grow and build the audience. And if you're interested in catching the rest of this conversation, as we discuss the growth of Christianity from Christ to Constantine, and then we discuss our own beliefs, or lack of them, then you can subscribe to us in a number of ways. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can follow or subscribe to our YouTube channel, and that will ensure you get each new episode as it comes out every week. We release episodes every Saturday, so subscribe that way. And then you can also get tidbits and updates by following us on Facebook and Twitter. The links to all of that are on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, all one word. So... Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again for the rest of this conversation.